your skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scary skeletons speak with such a screech. You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear these zombies shriek. Don't do that. <laughs> let, go, let go of my charging cable, you cunts. <laughs> Go get some chocolate. <laughs> shit. Cunt. All right. So, coming coming right into it, slapping you hard. I'm here with Ten Schlong Odam, <laughs> and, and he's here again after a, I think five episodes. Your last episode was 53. This is this is really cool to have you back so soon. I'm glad you had so much fun the first time. Mm-hmm. We're here to do some fun shit today. I hope you're excited. I'm a little sick. Let's like let's start off the bat, folks. If I cough, if I mumble, if my voice sounds like garbage, that's because I myself am human garbage. And I'm here with my guest. Who always sounds congested? Tenron Otrin. Tenshlan Odam. <laughs> you like that? You like that nickname? Tenshlan Odam. It's, it's it's short for ten inch long, and then the women say Odam. Wow. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> Tenron Otrin here. Oh uh, well, me. sir, I uh, I have practiced abstinence, so. <laughs> not quite exactly sure, hundred percent, what you mean. You know, if we went back. If we went back like ten years ago to when I met you twelve years ago, I probably would have, you know, would have thought you were a nice young Christian boy. But uh, but now I know for a fact that that is not true. Yeah, now I'm a nice young atheist boy. <laughs> yeah, nice narcissistic. No nihilistic. Nihilist. You're not narcissistic. You're nihilistic. No. See, that's the thing is. I think the beauty about nihilism is that I am a person who doesn't think the world revolves around myself. As- absolutely. That's nihilism 101, is that life is pointless, I'm pointless. Precisely. Yeah. So, like, narcissism is absolutely the wrong word. Uh, nihilism. I'm not 100% nihilistic, but I, I, you know, bipolar, I flip-flop sure. between optimism and nihilism. Well, we, we all have to kid. We all have to joke. You know, we all have to tell ourselves there's... There's a point to going to work. There's a point to, you know, there's a point to not giving Sophie chocolate, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. There's an order. There's an order to the chaos that is life. <laughs> yeah, so we're here. This is lots of pasta. We got some, like, fun shit, but uh, before we get there, uh, off the bat, there are a couple things we we got to talk about. First order of business is... Today they revealed that part four Jason and Map is coming to Friday the 13th game. Really fucking pumped. Anyone who bought that game and is playing it, it's so much fucking fun. Everything is DLC for free. So it's 40 bucks for the game and you get all this shit for free. Multiple maps, multiple Jasons, all this shit. It's fucking awesome. I love these guys. The game, it started off playing like garbage. It's only gotten better. And I will say right now, even to you, If you're like me at all, and you like to just, like, troll people in annoying voices online, (laughs) like, it is a fucking hoot. Last week I was playing, and I had just gone out of a party with our good pal, uh, Frowns McBoohoo, and... Uh, I went to go play by myself, because he doesn't like playing Friday the 13th with me, because he's a- he's a little bitch. And he- he doesn't- he- he gets afraid. He, like, gets scared pretty easily. (laughs) And he... He just doesn't like playing with randos, and that's really all the game is. It's playing with randos. It's uh, For anyone who hasn't played Friday the 13th, it's seven people running around as counselors, one person running around as Jason. 
uh, the Jason has to kill the counselors. The counselors have to escape through various means. Really fun time. I think I've talked about it like once or twice on the podcast. Um, I play it like every week. It's so much fucking fun. Uh, I was playing, and no matter who I am, I act like that person when I'm when I'm talking. <laughs> so if I'm playing as Bugsy, I'm just like, oh, what up? And when I'm playing as Eric LaChapa, I walk around and I'm like, uh, I cast a illusion spell. <laughs> and like I throw like a firecrackers on the ground and I, and I try booking it away from Jason before he kills me. <laughs> but the story therein lies is that I was playing as Jason from part two, which is the Jason for the Friday the 13th fans. It's the Jason with the bag on his head. So whenever I play as that Jason, I call myself uh, Baghead McGee, and I run around and I go, ah, here comes old Baghead McGee, coming for you again. <laughs> and he runs around with a pickaxe, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm chopping people in the face with my pickaxe, and I'm like, I pick you, ha. And, you know, s- stupid, lame shit on purpose, and everyone hated me. <laughs> Absolutely everyone, and here I am, like, laughing, and someone's, like, some random player was, like, that was so fucking annoying, kid, like, when, when you're, when, when your balls drop, come back and play with us, and they were just mad because I killed every single fucking one of them, not one person fucking escaped, like, one person even came back as the one hero character, which is, like, an unlockable thing you have to do in match, one person came back a second time, it's like one person has that chance, fucking killed him immediately, like, he shot at me with a shotgun, fucking missed, and I just fucking murdered him, like, immediately, and everyone was so mad, and everyone was just like, you're so fucking annoying, I'm gonna mute you if you do that again, and like, one guy, one guy in this, like, eight-person group at the very end of the game goes... I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> I was just like, I do this for you, one person who thought it was funny. Uh, Much like this podcast. You killed them, though. Mm. I murdered every single one of them. And let me tell you that the one person who talked about my testicles in a not nice fashion, he proceeded to then lose the next five <laughs> games. And every time I had an opportunity to save him, I absolutely did not. (laughs) I played the next five games as Counselor. That was my first game of the night as Jason. I played the next five games with the same group as Counselors, escaped every single fucking time. Because I'm good at this game by now. I've been playing (laughs) it for like three months. And this kid, like, he slowly started to, like, warm up to me once I talked in my regular voice. And I was like, yeah, I'm 25. I live in Pennsylvania. You don't have to talk about my balls. It came to a point where I had a car started, and I was getting people in my car, and I had a spot open. And he was like, hey, is the, hey, is the car is the car open? Is the car have a spot open? I'm like, nah, snooze, you lose, fucker. And I, like, drove away. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Anyway, uh, so Friday the 13th, really awesome. Uh, free DLC is coming. Uh, I hope everyone is on that shit and playing because it's really just me and Frowns right now. So Xbox One, get at me. Lots of pasta. Mm. Number two order of business is last night I saw It. And I'm not going to talk about it in detail because I'm not here with the right people, which is Disco D or Frowns or... Django, all of which I saw the movie with. We fucking loved it. And let me tell you people, go out and see it if you haven't already. It's been like 16 weeks since it came out, so I hope you saw it. If not, now buy it on DVD and Blu-ray. The script 
that comparison that we did last episode very accurate for all the listeners who who listen to that episode a lot of the stuff carried through and I was I was thoroughly impressed by the directing work and you need to go and see it. I was going to say if you weren't if you were staying here tonight I was going to be like hey let's go see it. Really really good movie. Probably my favorite movie of 2017 right now. Well, you know, speaking of ex-directors, what's all that about Star Wars? <sighs> so, Colin Trevorrow, he did Jurassic World and Safety Not Guaranteed. Those are, like, the only two, like, big-name movies that he's ever done. And I think something about Kathleen Kennedy and working for Disney and all those people, I think something just spooked him and he just doesn't want to do it anymore. It might have been a lot on the table and it might have been... You know, someone that close probably knows what's happening in 8 and wants to know, like, right now, where 9 is going to start and end. Mm -hmm. And when he was probably told that, he probably said, like, probably not the best person for this. Yeah. Or he just kept, you know, Disney has this way. Disney, Marvel, Lucas, like, everything has their way of just when the right person is there... And they're having the right conversation. Sometimes it just comes out wrong. Look at Edgar Wright with Ant-Man. Has been trying to make that movie since 2007. And it just came out in 2015. Yeah. Like, he he dropped out maybe a year before it came out. You know, like, he was in the producing process. He was... He helped write that thing. He... You know, it could have been so much better. Oh, that bitch. <laughs> Quite literally. That's okay. It's raining outside. She probably wouldn't even have gone. Shit, my dog just peed on the carpet, everyone. It's such a little puddle. I'm going to get like a little kid like, hooray, sound like, like, coming right there. It's so tiny. Oh, it's it's she's a very small dog. Look at her hiding. She's like, I'm bad. I know. She's so bad. <laughs> Look at her. She's afraid to come out. No, she'll come over here. What are you doing? She'll come over I'm here. Not I'm not mad. I'm, I'm a little. I'm a little mad. Come here. No, she's very scared. I don't even punish her. Like, she's too young to be punished, or else she'll be afraid for the rest of her life. We have a three-month dog here with us, so. <laughs> three-month dog. It came into existence, and it's here for three months, and then it'll pop <laughs> out of the, pop out leaves, of existence. That's what the, that's what the three-month... another person's <laughs> existence for three months. We have a three-month old dog. <laughs> let, me, let me correct that. Well, who's directing Han Solo movie now? Well, that, again, that's a Kathleen Kennedy thing. Um, it was the two dudes who did Twenty One Jump Street. Um, I always forget their names because it's two, it's two bros. But uh, Ron Howard. Oh yeah. Ron Howard took over, and it's just like, of course you got Ron Howard, one of the most generic and basic directors of all time. He's good, but, you know. Yeah, but Ron Howard took over after they dropped out, and it's just like, shit, now that probably that movie's probably not going to be nearly as fun now. Apparently, a lot of the cast was just like, they want us to improv our lines and, like, be funny. And it's just like, yeah, because that's the director's style. They did uh, Zombieland and 21 Jump Street the same way, like, and those movies are great. I mean, I get it. it it's it's going to be, it was probably going to be really wacky and uh, cool. You know, but now it's just going to be, it's going to be a little bit more. just can pull it off. It's going to be, well, that Donald Glover playing fucking Lando Calrissian totally is could. on point. Totally could. And I like Alden. I like Alden. Uh, I saw um, Hail Caesar. I thought he was great in that movie. Uh, Alden Ehrenreich, who's playing 
Han, Han Solo. Yeah. Really great cast. I get it. I could see why they said this is bad. But, you know, when directors leave, it's because the studio is telling them they're not allowed to do something. That's usually what it comes down to. But for Colin, I think he's two movies in to his career, and something the scale of Star Wars might just not click with him right now. Mm. He he is the one who did Jurassic World after, like, you know, I think it was like a 12-year break. So I'm not going to say he can't pick up any franchise and run with it. But it's a lot easier to kind of rehash Jurassic Park than yeah. it is to introduce the third chronological film in a trilogy of Star Wars films. Um, so now Ryan is slated to just come over from 8 and do 9. And well, I'm okay with that because yeah. Ryan is probably one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, Looper and Brick. Brick is probably my favorite movie ever made. And I loved Looper. And 8 looks like it's going to be fantastic. So I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. And if he's coming on to 9, fucking good for him because... He came fresh out of school with a film, and it blew my mind. Yeah, I've just tried, been trying to avoid it all. You know, I was on the way to it yesterday, and Frowns is not a huge Star Wars guy, but I looked at him. <laughs> what the fuck? Just walked into the room carrying one of my socks. <laughs> You're such a bad dog. I was on the way to it, and I, I looked over at him, and I was like, you know, for one year of my life, I'm not... I'm not as pumped for Star Wars as I am for a horror movie, and that's kind of fucked up. Because <laughs> I'm such a huge Star Wars fan. When I went and saw Seven, I was in costume, and I got on fucking TV, <laughs> standing outside in uh, Jersey with my uncles, and everyone was in costume. <laughs> and we were just like, we were so ready, and then we got out of Seven, and we were just like, it was okay. <laughs> and then I saw Rogue One, and I was like, it was okay. And <laughs> it's just like... Fuck, I want 8 to be great, but I want, like, I'm going in this time with lowered expectations so that when I come out, I hope I, mean, I come out on top. what we all want is Darth Vader. I mean, what One made... One of the greatest cinematic what, villains of what all made, time. What made Rogue One a great movie for me yeah. was was that two-minute scene. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, but it inspired me. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're a fan, Marvel did a line of comics, and they did a couple one-shots. Oh, yeah. They did a couple one shots of Vader, and there is a there's a particular comic where there's like a sole survivor of some terrible fucking battle, and they were just like, "What the fuck hit you?" And the only thing he fucking says is Vader, and it goes in and it zooms into his mind, and he relives the events, and it's like six hundred soldiers in a base, all with guns surrounding Vader, and he's just fucking standing there. He doesn't even have his lightsaber out yet. And everyone just looks like they're going to shit their pants. And then all hell breaks loose. It's like the coolest fucking comic I've ever seen. Oh my god. You should you should pick it up. Star Wars, um, Marvel did a line of Star Wars one-shots, and the Vader one is to die for. So if you love that scene... Yeah, I'm a big comic guy, so... You excited for Rebels Season 4? Mm-hmm. I loved how 3 ended. I mean, I loved how parts of 3 ended. Darth Maul deserved more. Darth Maul deserved better. He always did. I mean, he got better. I, I would say Rebels was what his role in the movies should have always been. But his going out was, like, poetic, and I get it. But how stupid do you have to be to use the same killing move you used on Obi-Wan's master on Obi-Wan? Like, you're asking for it. He was asking for it. 
and I've I've broken down that scene a hundred times, and I'm just like, was he trying to die? Was he trying to lose? Might have. That's what I think, you know? That's what it comes down to, because he went from being a hardcore hate Sith to, like, Grey Jedi near the end, and you're just like... Well, was Darth Maul ever really... Because he was, he was forced to be a Sith. Yeah, but I would still say he was an established Sith who was then betrayed, tried to do the Sith thing again, failed, discovered it's all pointless, and then became a Grey. I would say most, when they lose faith, become Greys. So... Like, with, with Luke in 8, and with... Ahsoka. Ahsoka. Ahsoka Tano. She, um, she's definitely gray. Oh, yeah. Now it's my shoe. Now she walks in with my whole goddamn shoe. <laughs> I'm gonna let her have it. We got a treat here for you, peeps. I had Crying Hawaiian on an episode before you, um, in uh, episode 52, uh, I was scrolling through the stories. I was trying to find something for us to read, and I scrolled past this one. And he said, "Oh, is that the Whistlers?" And I was like scrolling down. I was like, "I don't know." And I and I did a you know co- a command F to try and find Whistlers, and you know, sure enough, it was. And he was just like, "Oh, I've read like half of the Whistlers. They're great." And I was just like, "That's good. That's good to know. That's good to know." Because he he's he's a he was an avid listener of us. He didn't even come on until after the 50th special, but he had listened to like all the episodes beforehand. And he's an avid reader of Reddit No Sleep. And it's just like when he says something is good, I tend to, you know, I go to him to ask him how the episodes are doing. And he always gives me his unbiased and honest review. And I'm just like, cool, I, you know, I appreciate it. So when he says something's good, this is going to be good. This has been tagged on Reddit No Sleep as The Whistler's. It's a four-part story. Uh, I think we're going to read the first two here in this episode, and then we'll come back next episode and we'll read the next two parts. It works kind of like logs. I think, you know, just looking at it, it's a log-by-log kind of thing, and I don't really know what else to say. Uh, You came in today saying creepy woods, (laughs) scary woods, and, you know, that makes me think of Django's episodes, so it's just like... Hey, if this is something that Django and I would have read, but I'm reading it with Tenron, you know, let's do it. Because, uh, you know, 1999, Mr. Bear went went so fucking well that I'm, I'm ready to dive into the same kind of stuff. Anything you want to say before we get in there? I just keep thinking about Caledon Local 21. <laughs> I still want to go there. Caledon, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> so many people are going to be like, where are you going? Where, where are you going, eh? Where... Oh, you're going up north to Caledon. Why? <laughs> like, go to Vancouver, do some heroin. No. Um, you know, it's... I'm sure we'll go one day. It sounds like something we'll do in, like, like next year and we'll regret it. <laughs> oh, next year. That's, that's... I was thinking maybe in our 30s when we're depressed and... Uh, <laughs> Looking to fall in love with some sweet young Canadians, uh, some sweet young Canucks. <laughs> yeah, when when I'm out Canucks. of when I'm out of school and I'm when I'm out of school and I'm crippled in debt. <laughs> yeah, I just want to kind of. Yeah, can we go to Caledon? Can I stay there? <laughs> can I save me from America? That's you know that's granted the world hasn't been ended by then. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is all. <laughs> Your life is a blink. 
your life is a blink in the grand gesture of the universe. Uh, enjoy it while you're alive, is what I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> I'm just picturing somebody doing a grand gesture, and I'm picturing a blink of that gesture as a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Kill the jester! <laughs> All right. So this is... um. This story is called On Reddit No Sleep. Uh, it's it's known as the Whistlers through the grapevine, but the first log, I would say, is called Bought a Camping Backpack from an Estate Sale and Found These Pages Inside. Which, just by the title, is kind of like, shit, I think on episode 47, we read something very similar to this, which is like someone found, um, someone bought like a bag and there was like a diary inside and we read like fucked up journal from a diary. And that was also Django on a camping kind of special episode. So this is this is really interesting. Um off the title, what do you think? I well, estate sales can mean anything. I mean, yeah. yeah. A death, you Abs- know. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm thinking. So, if this person came back to their house with their backpack, with the camping backpack, and there were logs of a fucked up journey in there. What does that tell you? This dude probably killed himself. Yeah. Or, or went missing through various means. Whatever whatever happened in those woods off the bat followed, followed him. him back. It's a great start. It's a great tag. You know, just just from that opening sentence. That's what we can gather. So this is from Reddit No Sleep. There was a bundle of papers wadded in a deep pocket of the backpack, but I didn't notice it until after I got home. I went back to the house where the estate cell was held, and a young woman answered the door. She couldn't say who the backpack belonged to, and had no interest in the papers. Her grandmother was the one who died. Oh, well there we go. It's maybe not as creepy as we thought. Of old age, natural causes. Apparently she was a bit of a hoarder, so I don't know if I'll ever be able to track down the source. The handwriting is tiny, and the pages are damaged. I'll transcribe as faithfully as I can. September 5th. No year, which is interesting. I like um, how that makes it sort of timeless. Like well, any, we can, anyone can read this at any time. and Maybe we can... Uh, maybe we'll be able it? to put together some context clues. And It's September 8th today? September 8th today. Yeah. Okay. How nuts is that? September it's 5th. Little... This happened three days ago. <laughs> little odd. September 5th. The man on the trail is dead and will need to be moved. It is a more difficult task than I would have guessed, and nearly impossible for a 5'4 woman with no help and no gurney. I tried to drag him toward camp right after I found him this morning, but only succeeded in pivoting him and twisting his legs around each other horribly. Bodies look so wrong once they stop feeling pain. I never thought I would have so much experience with death, but I haven't cried over the loss of someone since the lighthouse. This man shit his pants before he died, and moving him made the smell worse. It would bring the animals in. Still no sign of Ira or Bill. Ira! Bill, 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 Nye the science guy. Stop eating my shoe! You little furry cunt. Come here, bitch! They're so cute when they're young, but I I much prefer older dogs that don't use too much shit. Except die. Remember, a blink of the grand gesture is that lifetime. (laughs) Sophie, remember that. (laughs) Oh, 
Oh man. Now I'm just thinking about like drawing your character as like a jester. <laughs> just winking. <laughs> just winking and looking confused. You're gonna die someday. Oh, September 6th. I used Ira's foam sleeping mat like a sled to move the dead man. It still took me an hour to drag him 30 yards and now the mat is so torn up that I'm questioning whether it was worth the effort. Gary Law. His driver's license in his wallet. He's from Utah. He's Mormon on a missionary. <laughs> I took the sight of him as a good sign at first. Another human on the trail might have meant we were close to civilization, but now I'm not sure what he was doing out here or what it means. I can't tell what killed him. No claw marks, no wounds on his hands. He's stoutly built, but with bagginess about his physique that makes me think he was starving. He died with his mouth open. Every mucous membrane turned ash gray. I don't think he was attacked. It's a relief. If he had been missing pieces, the logical thing to do would have been to move camp, but then Ira and Bill would have come back to nothing. I'm more afraid of being separated from them than I am of anything else. Still waiting on them both. Okay, so it's been a day. Still separated. Day by yourself. September 8th. So it's been two days. Today. Which is fun. No, it's been three days. September 5th is when she no, started. No, September 8th is today. Well, yeah, September 8th. We're recording this on September 8th, 2017. I think and that's here, pretty funny. This is a special log. I spent all day yesterday stripping and burying Gary Law. He was shorter in stature, but his clothes should fit Bill well enough. His feet were small, so I'm keeping the socks for myself. They're almost brand new, thick, blue wool. I can tell he wasn't an outdoorsman. Everything else was new too. New shoelaces, new cross trainers, new windbreaker. None of it quite right for someone trekking this far out. And the pants are from Banana Republic, pleated, and with a neat sheen. These aren't pristine like everything else and were hemmed by a tailor. I washed them in the creek, but they still smell like shit and death. Everything does, actually. To the point that I think the smell might be on me, in me. I weighted the pants down on a stone near the ridge that gets full sun. I miss bleach. I put green boughs on the signal fire today, but there was no answering smoke. I'm more worried about Ira than I am about Bill. It was Bill who found this trail to begin with. He always finds a way. September 9th. Bill came back today. He took his time coming through the trees, and I got so scared I almost fired the gun. But he clapped, and I clapped back, and he called out to say he was injured. It was the loose shale on the hill between camp and the cave where Lillian was killed. He got caught in a slide and wound up buried to his hips and one foot wedged between boulders. He couldn't get free until the rocks shifted again, which they did that night when a whistler came by. He's sure it didn't see him. He had to spend two days convalescing within sight of Lillian's cave before he went well enough to hike back. Two nights alone out there. I boiled water while I listened to his story and gave Bill some aspirin from the dead man's backpack. His foot needed to be wrapped, but I don't think it's broken. We should stop splitting up, I said. He nodded and pushed his back towards me. There was salmon and berries and some mushrooms I didn't really trust. We should think about hiking out, he said. Pick a direction and go. It's been four weeks. We'll only get weaker. When Ira comes back, I agreed. But Bill pursed his lips like there was something he couldn't say. What? 
but he only shook his head. It's been ten days now since Ira left. Ira's fucking dead. <laughs> Bill saw it happen. Worse, Bill did it. It's all a fucking conspiracy. Or Ira became the a dead list. man oh, that this say. woman found. <laughs> I was thinking you were going a little bit smarter. I was like, Ira became a whistler. I don't know what they are yet. That's the first name drop of a whistler in that log, and I'm still kind of confused. So they, Well, they know what whistlers are. They're not discovering what whistlers are. I imagine it's something that makes that noise out in the woods, which is something I don't want to hear. In the middle of the night. You I'd, know? I'd imagine it's something like this. Shit my pants. I can't even whistle. <laughs> <laughs> that was pathetic. <laughs> that was it. That was. Um, see, see, listeners, that, that was the whole joke. Is the whistler is someone who can't whistle and just goes. Fuck. Can't even whistle. It's just some. <laughs> somebody, it's, somebody, it's, somebody little, it's like some little leprechaun like hiding in a bush, and it's just like. shit, I can't even fucking whistle. <laughs> Fuck. But, like, even thinking about it, it's just, like, you know that humans and, like, birds are, like, two of the only things that can produce, like, a whistling noise, other than, like, the wind going through a certain corridor. And it's just, like, if it weren't windy out and you were in the middle of the woods and you heard whistling, my mind would go to birds, but if it's a certain kind of whistling... I might think it's a human. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's some sort of humanoid. Yeah, uh, off the bat, we, things like Wendigo and Siren. Have and you ever read H.G. Wells' Time Machine? Yes. Yeah. You know, like, like those monsters. What if it's a creature like that mm. when he goes in the future? But they were the future monsters. Those things. Yeah. Scared me as a kid. Oh, they were terrifying. Yeah, the way the way that they're described. It's a good. It's a good drop too. One of the oldest sci-fi. Now uh, that's the picture I'm thinking of Whistler now. A little monster. September 11th. I woke up this morning to a sound I thought was a Whistler, but it was actually Bill, on his knees, crying at Gary Law's grave. I yelled at him about it, about waking me up and making so much noise. He looked hurt, and I felt bad. I'm just worried about Ira, I, I think, and and afraid. I don't know what we'll do when the weather starts getting colder. If we wait too much longer, hiking out won't be an option. There hasn't been any sign of rescue. No planes, no helicopters, no smoke. No sounds but wolf howls and the distant whistling, like elk mating calls almost. If Ira were here, he'd tell us a story to get our minds off things, but... Oh. He's a registered nurse. He doesn't panic. So Ira's a guy. You know, Ira's one of those asexual names where I'm just, I always think woman for some reason. Yeah. If it was, if it was, if it was Irma, you know, we would Irma. know. Yeah, Irma. Was that a fear? I think oh, that's it's a hurricane. Oh, shit, you're right. Hurricane <laughs> going on right now. I also, no, that's Alma. Alma is the chick from fear. All right. September 12th. I apologized to Bill last night. He shook his head like it was nothing, so I put my hands on his shoulders and apologized again because I needed him to really hear it. Well, I'm sorry you were alone, he said. We should never have left you alone. 
He was looking into my eyes so sadly, and I imagined he was remembering all the awful things of the past few weeks and feeling the same guilt I felt. It was our research that brought everyone here, our recklessness and curiosity to blame. Then he kissed me, and kept kissing me, and finally I kissed him back, because I was feeling something for once. Not even lust, really, more like homesickness. A little breakthrough of pain and wonder after all the bitterness and hardening and cold. We undressed each other and had sex in the tent. I don't know why. I've never cheated on Ira before, never even thought about it. This didn't seem wrong in the moment, but now it's difficult to write it down. It just felt like something we both needed. We didn't say anything at all. Afterward, he went outside to sleep by the fire, like he couldn't stand to be so close. He spent this morning hauling water and wood, barely pausing to acknowledge me. I don't think it'll happen again. I don't think either of us will tell Ira. September 15th. It's late. We hear whistlers just north of us, a chorus of them. Bill says he hears eight distinct tones, but I don't know. It could be dozens. We put the fires out, and now we're crouched in the tent with the knives and the gun. Bill reaches for me, puts himself between me and the sound when it crescendos. I don't think he knows why he does it. I don't think it would make a difference. We won't sleep tonight. September 21st. Six-day jump. Ira is back. His coat is in tatters and his hat is gone. He isn't speaking. I would call it shock, but he's the only one with medical training and I don't really know what to make of it. He walks and moves fine. He doesn't look at me. Doesn't seem to see me. I feel so guilty. I'm the reason he's out here. Now every time I look up, I find Bill staring at me. He tries to communicate with looks, but all I ever make out is the fear and shame. Ira won't eat. We zipped him into the dead man's jacket and left him to sleep, but he's been shaking and mumbling all afternoon. He seems exhausted, but he hardly closes his eyes. It's my fault. September 26th. Ira hasn't improved much, although he is sleeping now, and eating some. I've only seen him sick once before, food poisoning on our honeymoon. He was so stoic about it and didn't want my help. Now he hasn't got much choice. I walked about a mile north and shot a porcupine, and Bill is setting up an alder smoker so we can save the meat. He's getting serious about us hiking out, but I'm not sure how we'll manage with Ira so sick. He made it back here, didn't he? Bill said. He'll snap out of it. Maybe so. Neither of us has speculated about what Ira saw. All we know is he was on the south side of the mountain. Bill has proposed we go west as far as the river, and then follow it south. If he's right about where he thinks we are, we'll hit Red Hill before it starts to snow. There's a lodge there and a few permanent residents, or so the helicopter pilot said. If anyone is looking for us, they've certainly asked around in Red Hill. I'm glad we have meat now. I've been feeling weak. September 30th. Ira is recovering and not a moment too soon. I woke this morning with his arms around me and the look in his eyes said he knew where he was, who I was, and was bursting with something he wanted to say but couldn't. It's okay, I told him. Be patient with yourself. We had a cold snap last night that left frost on the ground. 
and all three of us cuddled together to sleep, Ira between Bill and I, and at one point Bill reached out to grab my shoulder. I think we're done with the awkwardness. I think we both know we were just scared. We don't have anywhere near enough food for the journey, but we're leaving tomorrow anyway. Bill has a cold. Oh, so now we get a year. So the, you gotta remember, this is a Reddit no sleep thread, so there are kind of uh, breaks in the wall about the person who found this journal and is just saying, like, the intro to the post. Ah. So this is, like, this is, I guess, part two, I don't know. Okay, so... Uh, this is just an update, I guess. Update, March 5th, 2015. Hi, all I'm glad so many of you shared my enthusiasm about the first entries, though my enthusiasm has since twisted it into something else. Yesterday in the comments I mentioned that I felt lucky for finding these pages at the estate sale. I don't feel lucky anymore, I feel guilty. This is going to sound crazy, but the more I read and transcribe, the more anxious I feel about the pages and the woman who wrote them. Her name is Ruth. That comes out in tonight's excerpt. I still don't know much about her. I have no leads to share about the young woman at the estate sale or her grandmother. Yet, I feel like Ruth is close. Like she's aware of what I've done. Like she's angry. I can't explain it. It's as if I can hear her. Whispers of disappointment rising along with my own pulse. I'm certain now that she never meant her words to be used this way, to be posted online with so little context, offered up as entertainment. I didn't sleep well last night. Still, I feel like we've started something now that needs to be finished. A few of you expressed interest in seeing Ruth's original pages, but I think that's where I should draw the line. It's where I can redeem myself. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of photographing the original documents, her original words, and turning them into just another memento mori for the internet to have its way with. At this point, it makes no difference to me if you believe me or not. I guess that might seem selfish, but you can't hear her like I can. Anyway, here's the rest of what I've transcribed so far. While you were doing that, Sophie uh, now dragged my shorts into this room. I put the socks out of her reach. I put the shoes out of her reach. Uh, honestly, those are my uh, burnt cigarette shorts, so I'm going to let her have them. Enjoy. October 3rd. Third day of walking. I wish I could talk to Lillian about what happened with Bill. She was young, ambitious, and so funny. Plus, she had a whole horde of birth control pills. She and Jeff were dating. I forget how many you take in emergencies and how soon after it has to be, but the pills are in her pack, and her pack is in the cave with the whistlers and whatever is left of her. She had the maps. She had everything that mattered. The cave is miles behind us now. We built a big cairn by the stream. At some point, we'll have to lead rangers out here, I'm sure. They'll want to collect Lillian and Jeff and the helicopter pilot. I can't remember his name. I hope one of us makes it out so his family can hear that it wasn't his fault. He had three daughters and was expecting a fourth. I can't imagine what his wife is doing now. If anyone finds this, it was an electrical malfunction. He got us to the ground safe and sound. He was perfect, even fixed the problem but then the weather closed in, and he couldn't take off. Lillian knew the way, so we hiked to the lighthouse. And then the whistlers came. October 10th. It's rained for two days. 
The dead man's jacket is nowhere near warm enough for Ira and too big, but we don't have anything else. At least it's waterproof. We hear whistlers every night now, just after sunset, three or four of them calling back and forth. Bill's convinced they're tracking us. We stack rocks high around the fire. We're following a new game trail now instead of the river. The walking is easier. I didn't think twice about it until last night. Bill leaned forward on his elbows at the fireside while the whistlers seemed to be circling us. What if this isn't a game trail? He said, his voice a low murmur. What if they made this? I don't have the energy to think about that. It's simple. If we're walking a trail they made, if their nightly whooping is urging us into a trap, we're fucked. Ira curls up in a ball when the whistlers start calling. He writhes like someone is sticking him with pins. All he's said so far is, let's go. So now I'm starting to assume that the whistlers are just camping people from New Jersey and they're just like, hey, hey, get over here. What are you doing over there? Get up. <laughs> hey, nah, they're over here. Nah, they No, you. No, you get up. <laughs> hey. They're communicating. October 14th. It hailed today hard. We had to take shelter under a tree, and when dark fell, there were no whistles for the first time in a week. The silence was somehow more eerie than the threat of the whistlers. Ira felt it too, because about 15 minutes after dark, he stood up and started whooping and whistling out in the rain, calling and screaming in a tone that didn't sound like him. Bill yelled at him to be quiet, but he acted as if possessed, calling out to them at the top of his lungs, with his eyes rolling back in his head. Bill tackled him to the ground and beat him to shut him up. Stop it, I said. At first, but when Ira didn't stop making noise, Bill looked at me and I closed my eyes and nodded. He had to knock Ira cold to get him to be quiet, and he was sobbing while he did it, pleading with Ira to settle down. The wind was sharp, and I think it saved us. Every tree was vibrating and creaking and howling. The whistlers had likely all retreated to their caves. Maybe they hibernate. Maybe they'll leave us alone soon. October 17th. Ira was his old self this morning, completely as if we had gone backward in time. He was up before either of us heating water. He said he took so long to recon the south side of the mountain because the whistlers caught him in a trap. It, it was a hole, clearly dug with tools. He was shaking while he spoke. They only came at night, and I, I didn't get a good look at them. I could hear them and see silhouettes, but nothing definite. It was too dark. I don't know what they wanted with me. I got out. I climbed out. And I ran. We're well away from there now, finally reaching the end of the ridges and the start of a valley where everything is very green. I hope the change in biome means a decrease in the Whistler population. Part of me wants to take steps to document as much, if it's true, but all of our field notes were lost with Lillian's gear, plus the night vision goggles and the cameras. My biggest fear is that We'll all be killed, and our disappearances will inspire some other young researchers to come up here to solve the mystery for themselves. We'll become just another line in the sick folklore that draws people to this cursed place. I would hate to be part of that cycle. Knowing what I know now, the Whistlers are very real, and they don't want us here. So, 
an interesting clue. Night vision goggles. I don't think that's extremely and readily caves. available yeah. technology, and certainly more recent than ancient. I mean, you could you could buy night vision goggles on like eBay and shit. So I mean, it could be anywhere from independent researchers to government government sanctioned. So time frame. And works. they already implied that they have a purpose up there for research. So yeah. it's like it could be independent, it could be government funded. Maybe maybe they're like a team going to explore an island like a Jurassic Park island. Yeah. Part of me thinks like this is something northward, like cold because of the hail. Maybe like Alaska. Maybe. North US. Somewhere mountains. Where, sh- where shit gets really deep and cold, like yeah. uh, like Michigan, you know? Um, it feels a little bit more foreign than that, though. You know, we, d- we don't have all the puzzle pieces yet, but I'm still going with the Until Dawn kind of, like, when-to-go kind of monster thing until we get proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, uh, part of me thinks somewhere that could have been inhabited by people. Because if you know mm-hmm. when-to-go lore from, from even playing Until Dawn or just because you're a nerd like me, um, you need to be a person who consumes people flesh in order to be cursed. It was a, an old Indian thing. November 1st. I dreamed last night that I was pregnant with Gary Law's baby. Nothing else happened in the dream. I was hiking endlessly with Ira and Bill, and all three of us knew that I had been with the dead man, and it bothered us, but we wouldn't talk about it. I woke up with my period, thank God. i have never been so happy doing laundry. We've made camp by a small lake in the low point of the valley. It's uphill from here to a distant saddle Ira thinks he remembers seeing from the air. It's only about two miles away. Red Hill should be just beyond that, Ira says, but we don't have the energy to push that far yet. We'll rest today, and tomorrow we'll move, and hopefully we'll be drinking beer at the Red Hill Lodge before dark. Ira is the best shot, so he took the gun to look for rock ptarmigan. We lit two fires and agreed he's not to go beyond shouting distance, but I still worry. The Whistlers don't seem willing to attack when we're in a group. Lillian and Jeff were both alone when they were killed. Besides, I'm not convinced Ira is fully recovered yet. He says nonsensical things in his sleep, cries out and scratches. It's new. Bill and I went fishing after the laundry was done. It was stupid doing it in that order. All we were caught were minnows. Even that took hours. He was staring at me while we sat. The cold was seeping into my bones, making me irritable. I have been warm in weeks. What? I said. He's not himself. You know it. He meant Ira. He's better than he was. He's okay. We'll find him a doctor in Red Hill. What if Red Hill isn't on the other side of that saddle? What if we get up there and we're facing another week's worth of empty forest? What then? I realized my eyes were closed. I opened them and the lake seemed oddly bright. Bill's fingers were pressed against his brow. We'll worry about that when we have to, I said. I'm saying I don't trust him like this, Ruth. He doesn't remember the other night. After the hail, he can't control himself. He flexed his hands. He could get us killed. He's my husband. He's my brother. (laughs) I nodded, but that was all I could do. I've known Bill longer than I have known Ira and spend more time with him most days back at home since we work in the same department. He introduced me to Ira at a Christmas party six years ago now. What should we do? I asked. I don't know. But I think we need to move. I think we need to be open to the idea of cutting the rope at some point. If he gets any worse, it may come to that. Bill started rock climbing on the weekends in college. 
cutting the rope. It's a metaphor for I for letting Ira die so we can live. Bet Bill would like that, wouldn't he? So he gets he gets that Ruth Putang to himself. Oh God, something's not right with this gang. This is a. It's getting weird. This is a regular state of affairs. <laughs> this is a regular uh, soap opera. We got so it's opera. November 2nd. We're approaching the two-month mark. Shit. It's already been two months almost. How the fuck are they surviving, man? Eating fish, fish and shit. That's got to be just That's terrible. Shit. Yeah, it's got to be terrible. November 2nd. Yesterday, while Ira was still out hunting, we heard three shots in the woods. Too, too many to take down a rock ptarmigan. And, folks, that is spelled I, I think it's some kind of M-I-G-A-N. It's gotta be something. It has to be. Probably some sort of bird. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or a rodent. <laughs> yeah, they did say three shots, so something you could kill with a single bullet. A bird or a rodent. Anyway... Bill and I stood staring, tense, for just a moment before we hurried to put out the fires and pack what we could into our bags. Ira came running into camp, breathing so hard he couldn't say what was wrong. He had no gun and no bag. He grabbed my arm as soon as he was close enough and pulled me through the grass up the valley toward the saddle. Bill looked alarmed. He caught up to us and pried us apart, yelled at Ira, and handed me my haphazardly stuffed pack. All our clothes were still wet, torn from the line, and Ira's eyes were wild. He stared off behind us towards the woods he'd run from. It's a warning, he said. I understand it now, it's a warning. Bill tried to talk him down, but then we heard the whistlers eerily, musical voices. Hello, my baby, hello, my honey, hello, my gal. I've never heard it during the daylight. And never so close as this. I followed Ira's gaze into the trees and stared and listened. I couldn't move my legs. I couldn't even draw a breath. I held onto my pack straps with a stony grip like it was attached to a balloon that might whisk me out of harm's way at any moment. Ira took my arm again and now Bill was helping him, pushing me along the trail until I could run, until we were all running as fast as we could. The trail led straight into the open, and we all reacted differently, ducking through alders or sweeping wide from the trail to be closer to the cover of the hemlock. Ira took the shortest path straight through the matted grass of the game trail, and soon he was far ahead of me, and it was all I could do to keep my eyes on him and my legs moving as fast as they would go. He was the first to reach the hill covered in scrub, the saddle between two jagged peaks. He ducked low as he, as he ran, and I lost sight of him. Bill's bad foot and pack slowed him down. I saw him stop and crouch, wide-eyed, beneath the trees. After we'd been fleeing for ten minutes, that felt like fleeting seconds, Ira's vanishing sent panic straight to my toes. It took me no time to decide not to wait with Bill. I had to catch Ira. I kept running until I reached the ridge, my lungs burning. But once I arrived there, there was no sign of him, no trail to follow. I lumbered to the crest of the saddle, clapping frantically, looking back over my shoulder for Bill, who was also gone. From so high up, I could see the forest behind 
and the river and a flat brown bay at low tide. No town, no red hill. I clapped, but neither of them clapped back. I was so exposed, but the whistling was distant now, and in fact, I couldn't pick it apart from the wind with any certainty. I walked closer to the trees and built two fires with my fire steel and shaking hands. The second in the open of the hilltop, big and smoky. The hemlock makes for thick cover. There is plenty of dry tinder. We left the tent behind and the sleeping pads. Bill had the stove and the cooking pots. Ira had the gun. I have the hatchet, the fire steel, and the wet laundry. I made a lean-to with a small roof of boughs and set through the evening with my back tense against a thick tree and waited and slept fitfully. I did the same today and kept the fires alive. And now it's getting dark. I should walk back down into the valley to collect the tent, but the sound of the daytime whistle is stuck in me like a splinter. I can't face the creature that made that sound, even after years of looking for it. I never believed the stories, not really. We came here to research the folklore, to listen to elderly trappers and hunters tell the outlandish stories they grew up with, to record them for posterity. We should never have come here. No sign of Ira or Bill. So I'm definitely thinking like Alaskan wilderness. <clears throat> something that rains, something that's cold, something that's wide and monotonous. And what maybe gets, not even maybe just northern Canada. That's true too. What I start to assume is that you know, creepily, that the whistling is almost like a like I in my mind's eye, like if I if this were a movie, I want the whistling to be something like sustained. Like, yeah, just I'm gonna try and do what I'm thinking in my head. Of, like what I hear in several different tones is like. So I, like, just, I just think that that so, in different tones can be really fucking creepy in the middle of the woods. So if you took Gandalf whistling for Shadowfax <laughs> at a at a slower at slower at slower intervals, yeah. different tones. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to think it's just one flat like like different tones going like I just think that that's really easy to, like, mistake for, like... She said there was a distinct difference between the wind and the trees and the, the actual, like, whistlers. And why else name them whistlers if they weren't making noises like whistling? I'm sure that it's it's got to be some sort of shrieking high-pitched whistle, too. That might descend. That might descend from a high... from a higher tone. I can't even whistle that high. Nope. Cause, so I, I'm no I'm no music nerd, but what I understand about music is if if it's gonna be creepy, then it's gotta it's gotta descend in not your thirds, not fifths, in in not not on a major scale, but a minor scale. All of the whistlers are well trained in music theory. <laughs> um, so the second post from Reddit No Sleep is called Ruth's Account of the Whistlers. 
which is technically part three, but we're going to call it part two for the sake of the story. We're splitting it up into four parts. This is my third set of transcriptions from Ruth's journal, and the first two parts are together in one post. I recommend you read them before starting this section if you haven't. In response to the reservations I expressed about posting the previous section, someone said, By the notes you have transcribed, it sounds more like she wants the story told as a warning for others not to go looking for whatever they were out there to find. Hopefully that eerie feeling you're getting is just from reading these accounts by yourself. I hope that's true. I hope everyone who reads this will take it as a cautionary tale, Ruth intended. Judging by what's left, I think this will be the penultimate update. It's not. There are two more parts. <laughs> we pick back up on the 3rd of November, the second morning after Ruth was separate from Ira and Bill. November 3rd. The rain came through my pine shelter last night, but at least I can say it broke me out of my trance. I tightened the hip belt on my pack, added a few hours of wood to both fires, unsheathed my knife, and taped it to my hand. Bill told me to do this a long time ago if I knew I might have to run and fight at the same time. I'm walking back north toward the place where I saw him fall, toward the place where the whistlers surprised us. You ever see The Grey? No. One of my favorite movies of the recent years. I've never cried so much in a movie. Um, at one point, Liam Neeson in like oh, the final scene. I've seen it. Tapes his tapes the broken, broken bottles. bottles to his knuckles. Such, is a that, fuck, such a fucking badass. Is that what it's called? The Grey? Yeah, as in Wolves. Oh, I forgot the name of the movie. And yeah, I, I did enjoy that a lot. Fantastic. Yeah, I've, I just remember I was, I was alone in a theater with one other older man, probably like triple my age, and I was vocally <laughs> crying while watching the movie at three distinct different times oh. while the movie, because I, I didn't know what I was getting into, and when that first guy dies in the airplane, I just felt so emotionally shocked that I would just like, for the rest of the movie, whenever anyone else died from like ridiculous means, like I think I cried for... The first guy, when Liam Neeson's like, you're gonna die, who do you love? And I was just like, shit. That got me. And then the second time I cried was when the dad was talking about his daughter, and he imagines that his daughter is, like, there with him when he's dying, and I was just like, this is too fucking much. And the uh, third time I cried is when Liam Neeson is, like, in the middle of the pit, and he's just like, we haven't been going towards the exit, we've been going right into the fucking nest, we've been going into the fucking wolf's den. I'm such a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, he lays out everyone's licenses, and he's like, I hope someone finds these one day. And he fucking straps the bottles to his knuckles, and he yeah. just turns to the alpha, and the movie fucking ends. I was like, I, I turned, <laughs> the guy was sitting two rows in front of me to the left, and I was working at this movie theater. I had gotten off, I had gotten off early. I had gotten off early, and it was like the last day this movie was going to be in the theaters, and I was like, I need to fucking see this. Because I love the director, Joe Carnahan, and um, the guy... The old man gets up. Like, I stayed till after the credits. I, I knew that yeah. there was something after the credits from having cleaned the theater so many times. And I was, like, I was so happy with, like, the after credits scene. And, like, it kind of had, like, a poetic resolve to it that, like, I, I probably still had, like, tears. And I love the music as well. So I'm, I'm sitting there, and I stand up, and this old man, probably in, like, his 70s, is sitting, like, two rows to the left in front of me. And he stands up, and he turns around. And it's visible that he had, at one point, 
probably shed tears as well. <laughs> and I walk up to him and I give him a hug and I'm just like, one hell of a movie. And I just leave. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> it's like, oh my I'm gonna gosh. go home and cry. I loved that movie though. I'm sorry. It's no, like that it's movie... like I had to stop you because like something about that has been in the back of my head while we've been reading, which is like people being lost in the woods running away from monsters, which is like what that movie was. That like, movie back that movie shocked me. Terrifying. Yeah. That movie shocked me. And like throughout the whole thing though, I didn't see how the, that they would survive. So, you know, it, the ending didn't it's the last it, it didn't make movie. I, I didn't I didn't get sad. Because he, for me, Liam Neeson's character was, it had a purpose. Yeah. He was security. He worked security. That's how the movie worked. He was uh, he was a sniper for oil riggers on a pipeline. And it's just like, he's used to that shit, but like, he led everyone wrong, even though he was trying to do his best. And like, the movie just fucking broke me. I remember like... It got, like, relatively bad reviews, and I was just, like, after watching it, I was like, how? Like, for me, that, like, I, it put me through, like, a fucking like, triathlon of emotions. I don't know how it got bad. I don't know. Whistlers aren't the only things to worry about in these woods. There are bears, wolves, coyotes, fearless predators that encircle our warm camp at night. Conventional wisdom is to make noise when passing through denser growth avoid surprising a carnivore. Yet I have long suspected that noise lures the whistlers. Prey species don't announce themselves. They pass in stealth. After what happened to Lillian and Jeff, and recently Ira, I have no doubt that we are prey. So is Ira dead? Sounds like it. I think she's given into the fact that she's lost. I resolve to go quietly along the margin of the hemlock. Keeping the game trail to my right, the signal fire smoke squarely at my back. I walked carefully, keeping low, whispering for Bill whenever the wind slowed, pausing sometimes to listen hard. After nearly an hour of creeping and murmuring fruitlessly through the forest, I lost my caution. God damn it, Bill! I shrieked. As seconds later, his clap came. Two shocks of sound. I clapped back, and he did too. And then I found him, damp and chilled to the bone, slumped against the base of a tall spruce tree, not thirty feet from where I'd yelled. The needles where he sat were soft and dry, and I sat down right beside him, overcome. I tore the tape off my hand, held his face in my palms. His eyes were alert, despite everything. Where are you hurt? He lifted his ankle. It was still wrapped, but swollen now, risen like bread dough. It must have been fractured all along, and our sprint across the valley was the final straw. He was quiet but grimaced as I wrestled off his sock and the in inadequate wrappings. I held his foot against my thigh, feeling the mess of swollen tissues. There was deep blue bruising all across the top of his foot. He took my hands before I could do anything more. Where is Ira? I smell the smoke from your camp. I shook my head. I couldn't catch him. He didn't have a pack to weigh him down, and he's such a fast runner to begin with. He was over the ridge before me, and once I got there, he was gone. If he saw my smoke, he hasn't let on. He left you? He had no gear. I focused on the foot, knowing I would need something tight and sturdy to wrap it in, 
if I had any hope of moving Bill up to my camp. I took the dead man's blue wool socks from my feet. They were small for Bill and worked like a compression bandage. I rolled both of them onto one foot and there were tears coming down his face before I was done. I'm sorry, I whispered, but you're lucky. I don't think it's broken all the way through, just badly fractured. Ira would know. He stared at me after I said this, but I avoided his gaze. I cast about until I found a dry branch straight enough to make into a crutch. Bill is just over six feet tall, so it was awkward walking a mile uphill with half his body weight on my shoulder. I could see he was in tremendous pain, but we made the trek without stopping. And it wasn't until he collapsed beneath my pine shelter that I paused to let myself wonder if I had pushed him too hard. It didn't matter now, I reasoned. We were as safe as we could hope to be. I fed him the last of the dead man's aspirin and elevated his foot. There's nothing else, no food, and nothing to catch food with. I'll worry about that tomorrow. Tonight, it's all I can do to keep the roof intact and fires burning. Ira will see the smoke and come to us before Bill is ready to walk again. He will. He has to. November 6th. The swelling has gone down on Bill's ankle. I killed a bird, a grouse, by throwing rocks. That seems like a new low. Rock throwing is part of a deeper tier of human desperation we should have never have to access. While sitting immobile, Bill made a bow. He's used the bird's feathers for arrow fletching and maybe for fishing flies. He saved the longest tall feather out for me. To use as a quill, he said, in case my pen dies. We need to scout the area before we move again. I could hike to the top of one of the peaks, but I can't justify leaving Bill alone that long. Not that he's helpless, but the awful truth is that we're both down to our last of our endurance. If we get separated, if I wind up alone again, I don't think I'll have it in me to keep going. It's bothering Bill, not knowing what happened to Ira. The whistlers were behind us. He was ahead, he keeps saying. If they were hunting, they would have caught me. So they weren't hunting. What did they want? Why didn't they stop? At night, we hear them in nearly every direction, but they keep their distance. They aren't circling closer like they usually do. It's as if they want us to know we are within their boundaries, trapped within their turf. If we sleep, we sleep in shifts. November 10th. No news. The weather is dry, but much colder than last week. Winter is late, and I worry that when the snow finally comes, it will fall all at once burying us and any points of reference. I built a windbreak and improved our shelter. Caught a rabbit. Helped Bill bathe. I keep catching him putting weight on his foot, rushing things. No sign of Ira, and not much sleep. November 12th. It snowed overnight, at last. Just as I predicted, it came in a big rush, a great dumping of powder, and then a sunny morning. The signal fire on the hill was smothered, but Bill wouldn't let me go out and relight it. He would have seen it by now, he said, meaning Ira. Save the dry wood. He made a second crutch and used both to humor me, but he says he can't be idle anymore. It seems such a risk, I said, to move on in this weather with you hurt. If we stay here, we will die, he replied. He's talking about building a sled once the snow is thick enough. I can't listen. I'll take the boat to the top of the hill, scout our path look for game. November 13th. 
Nothing much to see from the high ridge yesterday. No snow has fallen yet around the bay, and it occurred to me that we might just follow the coastline south. We could set a new fire every day on the beach, leaving, or leave it smoking. Maybe a pain, a pain. Good lord, what's wrong with me? Too much beer. <laughs> Maybe a plane will pass, like an airplane. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Maybe Ira will see us from wherever he's hiding. Maybe the whistlers don't swim. Ira, where are you, buddy? I think he's gone again. I think he, uh, I think he went cuckoo, you know? He had always been cuckoo. Yeah. After it's something time. like Slenderman. Yeah, a little bit of proxy. Bill says we'll leave tomorrow. What about Ira? I said. He shrugged, looking exhausted. Don't know which way he went. Don't know where to look. Don't know... Don't know how he is. If we leave, we'll never see him again. I started to cry, and Bill walked away to the shelter and curled up like he was going to sleep. He turned his back on me. I looked out across the saddle and the valley and tried to keep my tears quiet. It was just dusk. No distant fires, no smoke. If he's nearby, he's cold, he's dying, and I'm helpless. It's full dark now, and for the first time in weeks, the whistlers haven't made a sound. November 14th. Bill woke me up at dawn. He had hot water and a scrap of rabbit for me. I'm saving the bones and feet in a plastic bag. I don't know if they'll be any good for soup, but soon they might be all we have. He lifted my pack for me to put on, then put his hands on my shoulders. I'm sorry, he said. I don't know what else to do. I looked back at him watched while he got into his own pack and kicked snow and dirt over the fire's embers. I thought of leaving a note for Ira to follow or some kind of sign, but the snow is falling again in pellets. Every trace of us will be obliterated soon. Would you resort to eating your own body? I would have to be really fucking desperate. Like your own hand? <clears throat> in a situation where like, I'm on a like beach like castaway situation... And I can't catch fish. Well, then you would need it your hands. I don't need my hands, don't need my feet. So the least, the least I would do without trying to like, because I'd be more concerned about infection of anything. Yeah. If I'm trying to stay alive, you don't want to be cutting all of your all of your shit. I'm trying to think of the meatiest parts of my body that would probably yield the least amount of discomfort and the least and and the and the best meat probably thighs ass. Sorry, I asked. It's just like I'm trying to be logical, because you need your arms intact. Yeah. And I think I could walk if I were to take like a chunk out of my thigh, you know? Yeah. November 18th. The hiking has been easier since we got below the snow line, but the weather is following us. The coast is icing over. We're making good time, and I think we're both relieved to be off the game trail. Aside from mud and rough gravel, the terrain is much easier here along the beaches than it was up in the trees. It's been five nights since we heard the whistlers. Maybe they don't like the cold, or maybe we've finally left their natural range. Even the smallest hope is agony. We had some luck with fishing yesterday. An enormous trout was struck in a low pond after the tide went out, probably sick probably already dying. We spent the whole day gorging on it and cutting strips to smoke. I found Ira's gold watch in my pack. 
I gave it to him for our second anniversary. He had a habit of taking it off whenever he worked with his hands. Must have stashed it in my bag to keep it safe. I asked Bill if he wanted to wear it, but he said no. There's no point looking at the time, I guess. I buried it near the fire, built a cairn over the top, said some words like a funeral. Bill didn't say anything. I had to. I had to do something in order to keep moving. I don't feel certain Ira is dead, but I can't fathom what it means if he's out there and we're leaving him behind. The most horrible thought is that he's the reason the whistlers are gone. Maybe he's leading them a chase away from us. Or maybe they were hunting and they, they caught him and their hunger is satisfied for now. Don't think like that, Bill says. But I know Ira is in his thoughts too. Bill is a folklorist, like me. But that's not what drew him here. He wanted to see the whistlers with his own eyes like Lillian did. He wanted to document them, their habits, describe them as a species for science. Everything that's happened so far fits the stories I said, don't, Ruth. But I don't stop, because he knows the stories even better than I do. He knows we're just all the other characters now, hunted, doomed. They pick groups apart, they separate people, they take their prey one at a time. You don't believe the stories, you never believed them. I opened my mouth, but the words were delayed. I believe we'll, we'll never see Ira again. We'll sleep a little bit apart despite the bitter cold. He's always up before I wake. Bill says he recognizes this coastline, and there's a pinnacle to the east he calls Fanfan Point. I'd say we're eight days north of Red Hill if we stick to the coast. I'm not getting my hopes up. What's the time jump? November 28th. Yeah, I think November 15th? 18th. 10 days. 10 days since I wrote. It all blends together. This bit of shoreline looks just the same as what we saw a few days ago. The water just as flat and gray. If it weren't for Bill and the compass, I would assume we were skirting a large lake, not an inlet of the Pacific Ocean. I would assume we were going in circles. We do a fanfone point to navigate by and the stars. The weather is cleared, winter is hesitating again. I worry I'll never see leaves on trees again, or flowers opening up in a field of grass. I worked all the time. Ira and I didn't take a vacation last summer. I squandered so much. Some days, Bill and I don't speak a word to each other. We stop walking. He assembles the shelter. I build the fire. He unpacks the food. I hang our damp clothes. We eat, we sleep, and in the morning we walk. December 1st. I saw Red Hill first. Our strip of shoreline was getting rocky, so we went up into a stand of cedar and found a steep bear trail. We haven't heard whistlers in weeks, so we beat pots and shouted every few steps and something about us using our voices made us giddy. Bill started singing a camp song I'd, heard, I'd never heard. Something from when he was a child, I guessed, full of rhymed bodily functions. He laughed while he sang it, laughed until tears rolled down his face. He had to stop to catch his breath, and I walked a short ways onward because it seemed he needed a moment alone. It seemed he was finally realizing what I realized when we left our camp near the saddle that we had abandoned Ira to an unknown fate. 
that he might have died a preventable death because we were too scared and broken to search for him. I walked toward a break in the trees with Bill hyperventilating at my back and saw a straight line far away and a clearing where lighter green grass vibrated amongst dark evergreen. We were on a bit of a ridge and could look down into the distant orderliness of a minuscule town, just a lump of weedy brush and granite rising out of marshy lowlands. Now I was crying. There was a water tower, a long split rail fence. Distantly some low buildings and power lines were visible against a curtain of trees. I called to Bill, who ran up beside me and stopped and stared. He wrapped his arms around me in his relief, squeezing me hard against his chest. I kissed him without thinking first, and he jerked his head away, exhaling shakily into my hair but not releasing me from his arms. I'm sorry, I said. I don't know how to, he began but didn't finish. I eased myself out of his embrace and gestured for him to follow me down the hill. It started snowing. Darkness fell when we were still about a mile outside of Red Hill. The terrain was difficult, thorny, and muddy. I struggled with my dimming flashlight, focusing intently on my feet and the ground ahead, but Bill grabbed my arm as the moon was rising. He stopped me. Look, he said. I looked ahead to Red Hill. I could see the water tower clearly still, an armored dome. High above everything, it was silhouetted against the sky. What? There are no lights. I blinked, searched. But of course he was right. As night fell, nothing had come to life in Red Hill. There was no porch lamps, no glowing windows, no blinking red beacon atop the water tower. The place looked abandoned, as still and dark as death. We can't stop here in the open, I said. Can you make it without your light on? My flashlight was nearly dead and the moon was rising away. I switched it off and we continued, not struggling as urgently as before. I was aware of the sound my boots made in the soggy ground. Bill's voice dropped to a whisper, was thick with caution. We'll knock on the first door we come to, he said. We'll lead with the fact that our chopper went down. What do you think is wrong? What are you afraid of? I was terrified, but I wasn't sure why. I don't know, he said. The moon was directly overhead by the time we reached the split rail fence we'd seen from the ridge. Caution and fatigue had made that final stretch of our journey seem endless. There were sounds in the woods nearby, not whistlers, maybe wolves, but I was more concerned about people. Lillian had warned us about the residents this far out. In these isolated stretches of forest, the lighthouse keeper had held a rifle to her forehead once when she surprised him after a few weeks away. We passed through the split rail fence and walked across a flat expanse of dirt struck with poles, tetherball poles. It was a schoolyard. There were no children to be seen, no people, no signs of life. I turned my light back on and Bill did the same. He had a headlamp brighter and whiter than my little incandescent torch, and walked ahead of me through the yard, up toward a chain swing set and a few low buildings that looked like houses. The street between them was hard dirt scattered with rough quartz gravel that glittered in the light. He was bold. 
He walked up to the low porch of the first house we leveled with and rapped sharply on the front door. Anyone home? He called. Our helicopter went down. We need help. All was silent. I looked around while he stared at the door, hoping the noise might draw movement elsewhere in Red Hill. No luck. We went house to house, knocking and calling at eight buildings on that lonely street. We ended at the lodge, a sort of multi-purpose building that contained rooms for rent and a post office, and a meeting hall. It was deserted like the rest. <laughs> My flashlight flickered and died, like we stood on the front porch. You scared? <laughs> no, she wants attention. I'm scared too. I'm scared, you bitch. <laughs> Okay, uh, empty houses, no people. We ended at the lodge, a sort of multi-purpose building that contained rooms for rent, a post office, and a meeting hall. It was deserted like the rest. My flashlight flickered and died while we stood on the front porch. Bill tested the handle and found the lodge unlocked. I can't see how anyone would object, he said, tipping his headlamp beam downward and looking at my face. We were both shivering. The pilot said people lived here year-round. He must have been mistaken. Inside, Bill felt along the lodge's wall for a light switch, but there was no power. I found a full kerosene lamp on a bookshelf and a book of matches in an ashtray on a table in the lodge's dining area. I lit the lamp and breathed a little, a little easier. Bill walked around the lodge's rooms with his headlamp, getting his bearings, but I sat at a table with a lamp, holding my head and trying to feel grateful for shelter. He came back, wiping his hands on his pants. The breaker didn't do anything. There's a generator back in the utility room. Looks like it's got a little fuel left, but I'll wait until morning to try it. When I didn't respond, he came to sit across from me at the table. Abandoned or not, we're going to have to winter here. I nodded. We'll get our hands on a radio, as much food and fuel as we can find, and we'll hold up and wait it out. Someone will come for us. I nodded again, but I could not look at him. All you need is rest, he said, softer now. He led me toward the bedrooms and opened a creaking door for me. The room had a double bed with a, a pretty cream-colored quilt, a closet with accordion doors, and a wide window that looked out on blackness. Is there a room without a window? He looked at my reflection in the dark glass and then looked up, looked up at the real me. I carried the kerosene lamp and my unsteady grip cast eerie shadows. Of course, he said. He ushered me into the room directly across the hall. It was adjacent to a doorway that led away toward a lounge full of deer trophies and enormous television screens. It had skylights, and the moon was showing through. So it still has a window. Yes. <laughs> the bedroom was nearly identical to the first, except the bedspread was blue patchwork, and the window was replaced with a hanging tapestry of sweet pea blossoms. I nodded, set my backpack down, and placed the lamp on top of the dresser so it cast light on each of the four walls. I unzipped my jacket, but Bill stayed in the doorway. I could take the room across the way. Don't be silly. He gave me a serious look. 
put his pack down beside mine and came to get in bed with me. Suppose it's too cold to sleep apart, he said, taking off his boots and settling rigidly under the covers. Why is it different from sharing a tent? It just is. I thought it would fall away into the deepest sleep of my life, but the wind picked up, and the lodge creaked and shuddered around us. I thought every other sound was a footstep or a human, a human whimper. At one point, I woke Bill up, dead certain I'd heard a baby crying. He stroked my hair and listened for a full minute, then pressed me down against the mattress by my shoulder, before lying back down himself back to sleep. He mumbled, but I didn't sleep. Instead, I took the kerosene lamp to the chair in the corner and wrote down this strange day. Bill is still motionless in sleep, one arm slung beside him in the place I left. It is different just the two of us sharing a domestic space. What will become of us during the months of isolation? What will we look like to whoever finds us? I hear it again now, a wailing that is certainly not the wind. The doors are locked, but that's hardly any consolation. If the whistlers are real, what else could be living in this place? A banshee? Wendigo? Or something even stranger? Bill sleeps through the, the sound. He won't believe me in the morning. So that's where we're going to stop with part one of the whistlers. What are your, um, what are your impressions? Well, we're going to be seeing Ira again at some point. I'm fairly certain, whether in monster form or human form. I'm also thinking, you know, how, um, like, 30 Days a Night style, how when winter is about to come, people will evacuate yeah. a wilderness town. I don't know if that's the case or if this town is seriously abandoned. I would like it to be seriously abandoned. Uh, that would be cool. But there was a there was a certain lack of description with the state of things. With how... Yeah, like, if it was abandoned, like, was it dated? Were things broken? Was, you know, or was it just like someone just turned all the lights off and nothing worked? You know, that's kind of the implication I got. Yeah. Is that just nothing works, nothing's it, on. It might be a, a seasonally here. abandoned town. Yeah. The kerosene yeah. lamp was there with matches. There's, you know, there's a generator. Mm-hmm. I would like it more though, is if this town was populated and everyone's just gone. I would like that. I think that would be spookier. What do you mean? Like a Roanoke kind of thing, where like people are living out here trying to start a life out here in wilderness town, and then next thing you know, people come to town and there's no one fucking there. Everyone's so, fucking gone. So they encounter people first, and then... Well, I'm still of the understanding that the Whistlers might be human, or human descendant. Maybe the whistlers because we are. haven't had we haven't heard a lot. You know, maybe they are the Red Hill residents. Yeah, no, that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at. They could be anything right now, but um, I like it. I think it's good. I think it's really creative. It's just on that border. It's just in that sweet spot of just enough detail and just enough lack of detail yeah. that all good creepy pastas and no sleeps need to ride that fine line and I'm glad that it's just like Mr. Bears it's just it's finding a nice center to kind of focus on and I feel like we're about to approach this does feel like a part one ending you know I feel like the next two parts are going to be very much 
we are now holed up in this place trying to live here. No one is here. We don't know what's going on. Who the fuck is that? That might be someone new. Who the fuck is that? That's probably Ira. What the fuck is that? Those are the Whistlers. More details. You know, like, I, I see a progression. Yeah. And I'm and I'm hoping it follows through. But that's the end of part one, everybody. Is there anything you want to say before we uh, tune out? Well, um, I don't know. I guess it's okay to cheat if you're scared. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's all right to have a to have an affair. Infidelities. If, if you're out in the woods and there are monsters chasing you. Yeah. That's I you know, if I were Ira and I came in and I saw like <laughs> Bill's boner and like and and you know, he's just like I'm cu- I'm cuddling I'm cuddling uh, Ruth Ruth for warmth. I'm cut uh, uh, you want to get in on this? You know, I, if I were Ira, I would be like, yeah. <laughs> you know? They're brothers. It's like, I have an older brother, and me thinking about it is just like, shit, like, I am Eskimo brothers with my brother. It's kind of weird. So it's just like, mm. <laughs> it's just like, are, are you Eskimo brothers with your little brother? Wouldn't that be something? I think I am. I, I'm, I am, I'm telling you, right, like, confirmation on this podcast, I am Eskimo brothers with my older brother through a really weird happenstance of events. And I'm, I mean, I'm okay with it because afterwards she said, you're a lot better than your brother. And I was like, yo, nice. (laughs) Oh, shit. Wow. I guess I'm the older brother in this case. Well, literally, I am the older brother. In your family, yeah. Yeah. No. I'm just a pathetic worm. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's a good, that's a good segue. Oh, yeah, we're all just pathetic worms in this dirt patch called life. I'm probably Ira. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the Ira in my life. Fuck me. Oh, that's great. Well, we all need an Ira. You know? At the end of the day, it's just a gesture. At the end of the day, it's just just a gesture's wink. At the end of the day. (laughs) God damn it.